Welcome to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm your host, Meg, and we have a bonus episode for you today before we wrap up our Olympic coverage. We get that final 4 a.m. Eastern wake-up time over and done with on Thursday. But with all of the legal news that's been coming in the appeal of the equal pay lawsuit filed by 28 U.S. women's national team players between the opening brief and then six amicus briefs last week, I've been balancing all of the soccer news with the U.S. women's national team, NWSL, with reading lots of PDFs off Pacer. Again, if you don't know what Pacer is, I envy you. But while so far all of this opening action from the appeal has been from the players, today's guest is Jamie Wine, who is a partner at Latham & Watkins, who represents U.S. soccer. The firm was tapped for the case last March. Jamie will explain more on that timing, but you might remember that one week in March very well, since it was also the start of the global pandemic, at least here in the U.S., and reframed the Federation's arguments ahead of the district court's partial summary judgment last year. Now, as someone who obviously has to report on both sides of this, I had never actually spoken with Jamie Wine until today. So actually being able to ask some questions directly was honestly very helpful for me. Hopefully it's helpful for you too to hear her perspective and point of view on the case. Before we get to the rest of the bonus pod, your reminder that you can show your support a full time, plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else that The Athletic has to offer on our site and app by subscribing now at theathletic.com slash full time. There's always an offer there and it's always one of our best deals. All right. So, Jamie, first of all, it's good to meet you. We have <laughs> never spoken. I feel like I've read a lot of your your words throughout the span of this time. But first, I mean, if honestly, you just wanted to kind of introduce yourself and how you came into this case, too, I think that would be super helpful as a place to start. Sure. And, and thanks, Meg. It's so great to be here today. So thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. Um, I've been representing U.S. soccer for about 18 months now. Uh, my law firm has a longstanding relationship with U.S. soccer and has done a lot of work for them over the years. And um, last year, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was our first week in lockdown, uh, when um, after the uh, offensive briefs were filed by prior counsel and there was um, some PR backlash from that, as you can imagine, U.S. Soccer reached out to our firm to see if we could come in and uh, take over the litigation and and most importantly, um, reorient the litigation to really focus on U.S. soccer's core values and the legitimate defenses that it did have in this case. And so that's when I was brought on to lead the team. At the time, we thought we were going to be going to trial. Uh, as you know, we ended up winning summary judgment just prior to trial beginning. But that's that's when I got brought in. And I've had a, a close relationship with U.S. soccer working on this matter ever since. Yeah, I mean, that week, it was the first, you know, that Weekend, I was at Red Bull Arena watching a U.S. Women's National Team game. There was stuff ongoing even at that point. And then that Wednesday, it's the final game of She Believes Cup. NBA shuts down that night. And then by Friday, pretty much everything lawsuit related had kind of blown up in a, in a PR fashion. So that was one of the wildest weeks, really, <laughs> I think I've ever had. Yeah. Just in terms of sheer everything is happening. Um, obviously... In terms of you coming into this lawsuit, I'm sure that there was kind of this, well, we're just going to set aside what came before us, right? As you said, you've got to reorient kind of this entire discussion to 
And I remember reading that first briefing and being like, this feels very different <laughs> all of a sudden, right? Like this feels like, okay, they found the argument that they feel is the strongest legal argument. Obviously there's some other stuff, but the focus was really on the collective bargaining agreement. I thought in terms of saying, listen, the players negotiated a different fashion. They prioritized other things. That is our strongest legal argument rather than kind of all this other stuff that had come before. Um, so first I just kind of wanted to start though, with this discussion of having covered this case, I was on the first media call for the complaint that was filed to the EEOC back, back, you know, five years ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel a lot of the conversation gets simplified down to, you know, like hashtag equal pay. Um, there is kind of this, what feels like a very clear cut understanding of the case and then having covered it and having lived it for several years now, I'm like, well, there, there is a lot of nuance, right? And you can try to do as much as you can to cover that nuance and say like, you know, I think that there are solid arguments on both sides where they might actually, there is potential for room for the two sides to come together, but is, is there maybe some frustration in terms of not feeling like that nuance actually kind of actually lives in kind of this overall discussion that we're having. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely say that that's been one of the biggest challenges, you know, for U.S. soccer itself in, in dealing with this case, because the women players have a, a slogan they put out there, as you just said, you know, hashtag equal pay, you know, uh, saying that they should get equal pay for equal work. And that's something that everybody would agree with. I agree with that. U.S. soccer agrees with that. It, if you don't agree with that, you really are backwards and, and, and don't sort of deserve to be at the table. But it's it's something that there's universal buy-in for that proposition. The, the challenge with this case is sort of getting behind what does that mean and what are the actual facts on the ground? And we're in this funny position because we have, as you mentioned, the EEOC complaint was brought several years ago and the EEOC decided not to pursue the complaint at that time, You know, essentially finding that there was no merit to it. We then had the district court litigation where, again, we had a federal district court judge look at this and dismiss the complaint before a trial, just saying that there wasn't even enough factual discrepancy to go forward to a trial. So from a legal standpoint, there's been a lot of success and a lot of validation of the of the defenses that U.S. soccer has from a public relations standpoint. That's been the, the much harder challenge to get behind that, to say, of course, everybody supports equal pay. And of course, U.S. soccer supports equal pay. And what's happening here is that U.S. soccer is paying the women equally, and in fact, more than the male players. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But as the judge found, um, but there are discrepancies out there. It's just that the discrepancies aren't at the hands of U.S. soccer, right? And the biggest one, as everybody knows, is the differential in FIFA prize money. So it's trying to get folks to understand what's really causing inequalities to the extent that they exist, that it's not at the hands of U.S. soccer, and that there is a whole history and context to the CBA negotiations that you mentioned at the start and why the women chose the structure they chose in light of the priorities that they had at the time. And so all of that is just when people sit down and want to listen and hear it, I think they understand that there's valid explanations and that U.S. soccer is incredibly supportive of the women players and has been treating them fairly. 
but just the, the PR burst that the women get to put out there, and unfortunately folks don't know all the facts, that, that gets traction. And that's really, as I said, that the start of this answer has been the hardest thing to, to fight from just a public relations standpoint. I do want to, I mean, there's a lot, <laughs> I feel like we could probably go for a few hours, right? Yeah. Like this, this is kind of, there's years and years, like it, it's even before the EOC complaint, right? Like there's so much history between the team, the Federation, kind of this whole entire, you know, I, I don't want to use the word saga lightly, but it does sometimes feel like that, especially when legal documents are, are dropping in the middle of the night and we're trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? But I do want to start with just kind of where we are in the case right now, because there has been a lot from a new standpoint in terms of the players filing their opening brief um, to make their their kind of opening argument for the appeal. And I, I would definitely like to discuss that with you. We got some amicus briefs, but first I just wanted to ask you, because there was also the news that U.S. Soccer um, requested an extension for the answering brief that was already approved. So that is now due September 22nd. And I just wanted to kind of get your point of view on, you know, kind of the immediate timeline from the U.S. soccer point of view. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. We will have an opportunity now to respond to the brief that the uh, women players put in. The extension is just a, it's a routine legal uh, mm -hmm. step. It doesn't mean anything from a substantive perspective. So our brief will go in in September the women players will have a chance to reply to that. And there's also a chance that additional amicus briefs would be filed during that process to supporting our side um, as well. So that's all gonna happen throughout the fall. There'll then be an argument in front of the Ninth Circuit, which is the appellate court that's gonna hear this. That likely won't happen until the start of, of next year, but that's really the timing in terms of where we are in the case. In the meantime, I just wanna emphasize as, as US Soccer has said publicly, you know, while we feel strong about the case and we've got the underlying district court decision on our side, we would much prefer finding a resolution with the women players outside of court. And, you know, I can't go into the confidentiality of that and what's gone on in the past, but uh, suffice it to say that it really is in our interest and we think their interest to just resolve this um, and, and stop all the legal proceedings so that we can just move forward together, you know, supporting and promoting and developing the game of, of, of soccer around the world. Yeah, I mean, previously to kind of all the most recent stuff on the appeal front, one of the last major developments in this case was the fact that there was actually a settlement between the players and the Federation on the working conditions. Part of this lawsuit, which was the only part that had been cleared after that partial summary judgment. So it did kind of seem like, oh, they're talking. <laughs> there is some there is some potential to actually potentially get those channels truly open. So was that kind of a sign where the I mean the players had always been pretty clear like we do fully intend to appeal, but was there at least some progress that you thought that got made from that that settlement part of it? it absolutely. And and we certainly, you know, are hopeful coming out of that that we've shown that the federation and the female players can work together to reach a resolution. We did it on the working conditions and I think everybody is satisfied with that. So I think that does provide a good roadmap and some optimism that, you know, perhaps we can do that here. As you also know, you know, we've got new leadership at US Soccer and Cindy Parlo Cohn in particular has been so wonderful at really trying to bridge the relationship between the Federation and the players, you know, having been a former player herself. And I think she's been really effective in that. So again, we're, we're all on the same side. 
Um, we all fully support, you know, the women and just want to see them do the best that they can. We want to see the, the female game, you know, grow around the world. And we'd love to just turn all of our energy and focus to working together to, you know, move past this. And as I said at the beginning, you know, work together to advocate where there does need to be change, you know, with FIFA, with countries around the world where perhaps their views on, on the women's game isn't as strong as it here as it is here in the U.S. Right. I do want to start with the opening brief because, so again, I, I, you know, before we started recording, I made the joke, like I I play a lawyer on Twitter, right? Like this is not necessarily my first language (laughs) at all. Um, But my main takeaway from that opening brief is that their argument really centers around this concept that total compensation is maybe different from if you look at a rate of pay that includes both appearances and performance. And that's really, there's, there's a number of other arguments that they make, but I think so much of the document really centers on, okay, well, the judge did this math that says total compensation, they get paid more total and per game Mm -hmm. than the men, but that does not account for performance. So I was hoping that you could maybe break down what your thought process was when you say, okay, well, total compensation is ultimately the number that you kind of think should be the one that stands. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a couple of things there and, and, and happy to chat about it with you <laughs> without getting too technical. So we obviously disagree with them. We think that the judge looked at it the right way. He looked at overall compensation on a collective basis. He also looked at average per game compensation and found that the women were actually paid more by U.S. soccer than the men under both of those measures. And that's a really important finding of his. And we think that that's going to withstand scrutiny. Um, as this goes up on appeal. Um, In terms of focusing on the performance aspect in particular, which is where the women are are trying to really focus the court on the appeal, you know, what that does, I think, is actually distorts the whole analysis, which is supposed to focus on overall compensation. So what they want to look at are just the bonuses that are paid to the players for showing up and playing in games, and then they're higher if you win. And under the structures that both the men and the women agreed to, because they're both represented by their own unions, as you know, and did their own collective bargaining agreement, the men opted for a structure that's more of a pay for play structure where they get paid, you know, higher bonuses for showing up, playing and winning, but don't really get any other compensation from U.S. soccer. So they don't get guaranteed salaries. They don't get benefits. The women opted against that structure, chose the guaranteed compensation in terms of a salary and benefits and do get bonuses for showing up and winning, but they're not as high as the men's. And so if you were to just take out the bonuses and look at them in isolation, you could say, how is this fair? The men's bonuses are higher. They have the potential for higher. But when you look at the overall compensation structure, it's not a situation where the men's deal is higher and the women's deal is lower. They're just different. And the women chose different priorities. And that's really important. And that's going to be important in the rate of pay analysis. You can't, you can't just focus in on like one line item and say, well, this is better for the men and this is worse for the women. And therefore the women are not treating, being treated equally. You have to look at the overall structure that they negotiated for, you know, in very extensive negotiations where they were well-represented and those were their priorities at the time. They wanted those guarantees in terms of salary and benefits. And I think it's really helped them. I mean, one of the things that you know we've talked about is we saw it play out during COVID where there were no games played throughout COVID in 2020. 
the men didn't get any compensation whatsoever from U.S. soccer. The women got their full compensation. They got their salaries and their benefits throughout the year, even though nobody played a game. So performance literally was not a factor. They didn't, they didn't perform, not their fault. Nobody performed, but their pay had nothing to do with performance. And so we just think that that's a great example of the benefits that the structure that they chose really provided to them, you know, in real life as last year unfolded. One of the things that I kept um, seeing kind of on repeat, both in the the opening brief, but also these amicus briefs was the concept that um, there was some pushback that, okay, the judge does this math in, in partial summary judgment, but fundamentally there was kind of this underlying belief of, well, maybe it should have gone to a jury because in some ways that you can actually assign financial value to some of these priorities that the women negotiated for in their CBA against that um, pay for play model that the men structured. And so I guess in terms of, even if you think, you know, in this hypothetical world, like let's say this goes to the jury instead, right? Which is kind of the the whole point of the appeal is not necessarily to have the decision overturned. It would actually just go back down to the district level. So that way it could be heard by a jury. But do you think that there is a way to quantify those priorities that the women negotiated for in the CBA, because I mean, and we do not have time to get into it on this podcast, <laughs> but obviously the the state of MLS and other male professional leagues compared to NWSL before that, you know, WPS, WSA, right? Like there is two very different histories on the professional side that are informing how these two sides negotiate that I don't want to discount, but I also don't necessarily need us to like go right. through this history right at the moment. But yep. when it comes down to the actual math of, okay, priorities are different here. Priorities are different here. Is there a way to actually put them on a scale and say, okay, here's where they might level out. Here's how they might benefit in some ways and be a drawback in other ways. Yeah. And, and we think there is, and that's why we say it's just not a simple analysis to say, the men get more, the women get less. It's just, you, you can't do that if, when you look at the overall compensation packages that each side negotiated for and have. And in the litigation, we both had the opportunity to put in evidence and then reports from expert economists who looked at that and gave their views. And the way the law works is if the judge looked at that and thought that there was any kind of material debate in terms of the facts on the ground, as to what the economics meant and were the women really getting more than the men as he found, he would have had to let it go past his review at the summary judgment stage and let those factual issues be decided by a jury. He looked at that and said that the evidence even viewed in the best light as the women presented it on summary judgment wasn't sufficient to create any kind of triable issue of fact that had to go to the jury. So he was certainly convinced that not only is there a way to look at the economic analysis and, and compare the two structures and compensation packages, but that the women hadn't even raised an issue that was sufficient to go to a jury. And, you know, I'm sure that they will raise that with the Ninth Circuit and try to argue against that, but we're confident in the analysis that he did and that it's right at that stage under the law for him to dismiss the case and not, not have it go to a jury trial. Okay. So next up, we have have these briefs coming in on Friday, obviously a couple of big, you know, looking down the list, there's maybe some names that people aren't quite familiar with some former officials from EEOC and, and the Department of Labor, but there's also the EEOC itself 
filing one. There's one from the Players Association for the men's national team players, which has the strangest acronym that I just kind of refuse to learn. <laughs> um, but just it doesn't it doesn't work in my brain ever. <laughs> but um, I, I think in terms of what your takeaways were from those, I think the men's national team players association one is obviously going to be the one that gets the biggest attention, which makes sense. The, that players association has, has publicly done some support for the women's national team players, but not quite in the fashion that they did this past week where, first of all, maybe from a a legal standpoint, you know, if you could maybe give a, a crash course for folks who might not understand how these fit into an appeal process, right? Like I tried to do my like, here's what they are. Yeah. Again, not a lawyer, right? So maybe let's start there with how these play a role in the case. Sure. And I, I've read some of your stuff. And I think you, you think you got it right. But an amicus brief, that's the, the legal term, the, the Latin term, it literally means a friend of the court. And so really any interested party can submit an amicus brief or at least request consent to submit an amicus brief when they have a view on an issue that they want to weigh in on, even though they're not an actual litigant to the underlying dispute. And so that's what they are. And like I said, amicus briefs can come in in support of the women. They could come in at a later date in support of the federation. And the court then really has... um, at its own option, the luxury of deciding how much weight to give those briefs. And they might ignore them altogether. They might consider them and and have it weigh on their minds and yet not say anything about it in their opinions, or they might cite extensively to the amicus briefs in in the opinion. So it really just runs the gamut. Um, The court doesn't have to say why or how or what to what extent they're relying on the amicus briefs but if they're interested in a point that's raised in one of those briefs they can certainly ask about the ask the parties about it during oral argument and they can certainly cite them in the ultimate opinion if they want to okay that is very helpful context even for me um so in terms of i guess let's start with the the men's players association but theirs really boils down to you know there is kind of this sense of I think my colleague at the athletic kind of boiled it down very well of like, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Like they're going to benefit if the women are paid more because the way that the two organizations bargain is they kind of try to use each other to leapfrog a little bit, or at least maybe that's kind of the sense that we get from the men is, okay, well, we negotiated this one in 2011 and then we expected the women to get more in 2017. And then maybe from there we get to go high, you know, like there's, there's, there is mutual benefit there, which I think makes sense and isn't, super surprising but the main takeaway from them was well they they arguably could have been paid more from when we had negotiated in 2011 um so when you were reading that was there was there anything that that stood out to you in terms of something that you are able to address or is that something where you're just kind of like well those live in a separate spot from our answering brief for the players opening brief. There's a lot of briefs involved (laughs) at the moment. Yeah. Look, look, we and U.S. soccer uh, were happy to see that the men support the women's rights equal pay. That's something that we're all aligned in. So it was great to see that support. And as you said, they've been public in the media about that. And it was good to see them put that position down on paper. I think the men could actually be really instrumental in helping to solve, you know, the, the issues that we're facing now in particular with the differential in the FIFA prize money, which of course U.S. soccer does not control. 
that's where I said is really the big difference in kind of what opportunities the men have to earn a substantial amount of money versus the women. It's that prize money. And the gap is massive, as you know. You know, the men make the round of 16 and they make more in the World Cup than the women make for winning it. I mean, it's just like double. Yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> I think it's more than double, but it's crazy, yeah. right? And so everybody wants to fix that. So to the extent that the men can be helpful in equalizing the differential and the FIFA prize money that, you know, is it comes, that, that would be terrific. And we would welcome that. Um, so, so that'd be great. I, you know, the, the thing about the one-upping and, you know, the, the women just trying to get what the men have or vice versa. I mean, the, I would say just the ironic thing that strikes me from that argument is that if I'm the, if I'm a, a woman player and I'm part of their um, uh, union and, and the players association, I want the ability to negotiate what I think is best for me and us as a team and the female players. And I don't want that necessarily to be dictated by what the men bargain for. And I actually think we're in this odd position. If you read a lot of the briefs, it seems to be give equal pay to the women. And what that means is just give them whatever the men get, but that might not be what the women want. And in fact, during the last round of the negotiations, it wasn't what the women want, right? They prioritize different things. They wanted the salaries and the benefits, like I mentioned. Maybe they'll have different priorities in the future, but I think they should be able to bargain themselves for what they want without it being necessarily constricted by what the men have bargained for. And that's there's like this underlying attention in a lot of those arguments that to me actually takes away some of the agency from the women to actually negotiate for what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's and and this could probably be its own podcast, too. But just, you know, what are the pros and cons to the two groups potentially bargaining together? Right. Because there was also some arguments in some of the briefs in terms of potentially if they bargain with the men that might help overcome any sort of discriminatory, you know, whatever in terms of if the men are involved, maybe some of this structural inequality gets kind of like leveled out because now they are bargaining together. So there is a lot of tension. I think we've had a lot of discussions in women's sports about like, do you directly copy and paste from men's sports? Cause that doesn't always feel like the solution, right? There's right. a lot of tension of, do you, do you want a men's team fundamentally running a women's team will be the number one priority. I think that that conversation really does fit in, in terms of are those CBAs going to be direct copies because I don't think they will be they yeah. I mean honestly they can't be because of maternity policies but that's that's a part of it and I think that's definitely fair I, I do want to talk to you in terms of one of the big themes too in collective bargaining agreement is this sense that the women have had this kind of historical disadvantage from a bargaining point of view where they're starting behind and you know I've I've read back to a lot of older stuff and, and part of this too, you know, it's not necessarily what is happening at U S soccer right now, but there is kind of this historical stuff that can't be set aside where, you know, former secretary generals are basically out there being like, they can strike if they want to, but they get what they get and they should feel like now they're just greedy. And so like, there is kind of all this stuff hanging over the history of this team that might be informing at least not necessarily maybe some of the current players, but like it gets passed, <laughs> it gets passed down the generation of players. And is that a, a problem for collective bargaining? Is that something for 
that we're seeing kind of bubble up in the lawsuit? Is it all of the above? Yeah. And look, those those statements, as you know, are unfortunate. And U.S. soccer certainly doesn't stand behind those. Um, And I think, as we mentioned earlier in this, you know, they've certainly um, have charted a new path forward, particularly with Cindy Parlo-Cohn and and lots of other changes that have happened. And so I don't think anybody likes to dwell on that. Having said that, most of the historical context from U.S. soccer has been just absolutely fabulously supporting the women in the women's game. And the history speaks for itself. You know, they've been the drivers behind setting up a league that would actually be able to sustain itself and thrive where where women players could play in the U.S., right? So that's the NWSL. I mean, that is surviving and thriving largely because of the backing of U.S. soccer. And that's so important so that we can develop the game here on U.S. soil. The players don't have to go over to Europe or elsewhere to play. You know, we've done so much to advocate with the Olympics, with FIFA, even though there's way more to be done with FIFA. But really, you know, I don't think any federation has done more for the women's game than U.S. soccer has done historically. So hopefully everybody has that context in mind. And that's really the most important thing when we think about the history. You know, the the negotiations, just to come back to a point you made in, in your earlier question, if the men and women wanted to come together and have one, you know, players association and negotiate as a single unit, U.S. soccer has said that they would be open to that. The players thus far haven't wanted to do that, which I think is pretty telling. And it just underscores that they do have different priorities and they do have different things that they want to negotiate for that might not be in common in one another. And so again, it just, it really reflects the complexity of this whole situation because we're trying to analyze it under a rubric of equal pay where you have two different players associations with two different sets of priorities who want different things. And then at the end of the day, kind of want to look back and say, okay, is it identical? When they're different, they're not identical, but it doesn't mean that one's being treated better than the other. Yeah. I mean, we have definitely seen a lot of explainers <laughs> over the years in terms of like, this is how the two CBAs happen. This is, yeah. Mm-hmm. There, a lot of work has gone into trying to explain that in a way that is both accessible, but also <laughs> representative of what is actually happening. Yeah. And it makes it different from many other sports leagues or even the case law that's cited in some of the briefs, because really you don't usually have the situation where you have a single employer like this with two different unions, as they're called in the employment context, but in two different unions or two different players associations negotiating, you know, and then you've got to do some comparison that, like I said, is kind of tricky and complicated, given that they just negotiated different structures from one another. All right, Jamie, let's, let's wrap maybe, I guess, with um, what people should be looking out for next in terms of I guess, you know, you, you kind of ran out the timeline, but is the next thing truly just getting that answering brief ready? Obviously, we've got Olympics to wrap up, right? Like that has been the other <laughs> joy of this, this last month or so where we're balancing a major tournament, obviously, with this kind of ongoing conversation that's not anything new for anyone involved. I mean, obviously, the World Cup was another real example of balancing this ongoing saga again (laughs) with a major tournament but you know we've got bronze medal match happening on thursday and then is it really just kind of everybody kind of goes back to their respective corners and we we wait for september 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure the women will want an, a well-deserved break once they get back from Tokyo. Um, but yeah, the briefs will be in September. But like I said, in the meantime, you know, we're hoping that we can reach a resolution out of court. That would That's really our number one priority. And I think it would be the best thing for everybody involved and the best thing for the game. Um, both the men and women are um, entering uh, current negotiations on new CBAs, which, you know, frankly, is an opportunity also to try to resolve all of this and deal with everybody's concerns. So that will be going on. Um, and really what I what I would love to see is just, you know, the women and U.S. soccer and the men, if they want, you know, everybody locking arms and moving forward to advocate where you know, the advocacy is really needed, like I said, with FIFA um and you know elsewhere around the world so that everybody understands you know how wonderful the women's game is you know how valuable these players are and that they get treated fairly you know everywhere around the world not just by u.s soccer just in terms of one one follow-up from that because i am really interested obviously we've had this legal process going for years now but there is this new collective bar the 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 current cba for the women expires at the end of the year so obviously the lines of conversation have been open to some extent, right? We're not necessarily in full like, ah, yes, we're going to sit down in the table mode, but you know, the two sides are starting to think about, okay, what, what can be accomplished in this agreement? So from your standpoint involved in the legal side of it, are you following what's happening with, you know, the, the start of that CBA process just to figure out like, is there a way to fit it in to maybe some form of resolution alongside the actual appeal process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously we can't disclose anything confidential, right. but to the extent that those discussions can be helpful in otherwise coming to a resolution that, you know, deals with the litigation as well, you know, terrific. And we have to be, we, U.S. soccer has to be negotiating with the women in connection with the CBA negotiations anyway. So why not use that as an opportunity to try to come to ground in all of this? And like I said, just start moving forward together. Yeah, I, I always try to be like, okay, listen, the Players Association is technically separate from, you know, I, I always try to use that framing of 28 players who are involved in the appeal versus the Players Association, because it is too, obviously there's overlap from the players, but it is to actually like different processes, which yeah. is always also another fun kind of like, we've got to set, we've got to lay that foundation. And again, it's a lot more complicated than that first pass generally tends to to look exactly so. just, just to add some more complication to an already <laughs> overly complicated situation but like yeah. i said we view it as providing an opportunity as well so you know we look forward to engaging in the discussion with the players association on that all right well perfect jamie i appreciate the time thank you for for giving us some some perspective because again um as someone who who covers both sides of this right and and tries to not necessarily pick a side, but also say like, here's what's happening on, on this side of the argument. Here's what's happening on this side of the argument. Where is there potential, right? Obviously there is a lot of um, public perception, a lot of optics here at play too. So, so many levels, it's always helpful to just actually talk to people too. Yeah. And thanks again for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again to Jamie for her time. I will be back in your feed tomorrow to preview Thursday's bronze medal match between the United States and Australia with my coworker, Jeff Reuter. So stay tuned to your feeds for that one. We will be talking about joy. You've been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan, which does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.